Well, good evening and welcome, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. And wow, that's all I have to say to start the night. Wow, what a fantastic night it was yesterday, Tuesday, in case uh, you're listening to this uh, later than today. Um, I guess the political revolution to restore some equality and fairness to the country has actually begun. Well, you know, we said we wanted a paradigm shift, and I have to tell you, I truly believe this is part of it, Uh, as is all the transparency in the news. I don't know whether you've been paying attention, but there has been a lot of it in the last year. And uh, did you hear the many different varieties of people who actually voted for Bernie Sanders in uh, the New Hampshire primary last night? People in demographics that um, no one expected. It wasn't just liberals or progressives uh, voting for Bernie Sanders. Old people, young people, gun owners, libertarians, Republicans. Of course, there were liberals, but there were women of all ages. And you know what? If he can manage to get more endorsements from the African-American community and the Latino community, I think uh, he's going to be too tough to beat. I really do. This electability issue is totally bogus, totally bogus. And uh, I think they said that uh, he actually raised $5 million in 18 hours yesterday after winning the New Hampshire primary. (sighs) It was just astounding. And, um, you know, and wouldn't that just be what the country needs? A man talking about goddess ideals in the White House, caring, sharing, nurturing, partnership, equality, care for Mother Earth, getting rid of this dominator, predator economy. I am all in. But maybe you knew that already, especially if you've been following my Uh, is we had a fantastic Joseph Campbell roundtable on Saturday night at the Goddess Temple of Orange County in Irvine, California. Um, Had to put out a lot more chairs than usual, lots of new faces, and they were all blown away by the incredible temple space. Our uh, great speaker was Will uh, Lynn. He discussed uh, Prometheus Unbound and Pandora Objectified. That was the topic of his talk. And uh, he had us eaten out of his hands. He was really a great speaker. In fact, I've invited him uh, to come to Venice. And uh, it'll be great to uh, uh, have him at both of our roundtable locations. And, you know, speaking of Bernie Sanders, during the discussion after the roundtable presentation, uh, we had a conversation about how Bernie Sanders is a contemporary Prometheus, because if you remember your mythology, and maybe you're kind of fuzzy, I have to admit I was too, I hadn't read about Prometheus since grade school, Uh, but he was the guy uh, who was the champion of humanity going up against the tyranny of Zeus. And we were talking about how Bernie is the champion of Americans against the tyranny of the establishment, uh, against the uh, tyranny of the status quo, the oligarchy, the patriarchy, predator capitalism. It was a fun night. And uh, I hope if you're near either Venice or Irvine, California, uh, you watch my Facebook page or get on my email list and uh, come to our Joseph Campbell Roundtables. They are really a lot of fun and a great way to have continuing adult education and meet smart, like-minded, passionate people. 
And uh, thanks uh, goes out tonight as well to Sabbath Night for their snippet of music called Witches Mark. Uh, relevant tonight because of uh, my two guests. Uh, first up is uh, Tom Hatzis discussing how the en- uh, entheogenic sacred feminine was demonized as the witch's ointment, uh, followed by one of the most famous witches in the world, Starhawk. Uh, with us tonight to discuss her new book, uh, City of Refuge, which is a sequel to her older fiction work, uh, The Fifth Sacred Thing. I have to warn you, there's probably going to be some spoilers, so if um, you haven't read Fifth Sacred Thing yet, um, well, you know, you got to decide if you want to listen. Uh, but if you're like me, you're going to uh, read Fifth Sacred Thing and uh, and then City of Refuge probably back to back. So stay with me and don't go away while uh, I share a couple of important things. Uh, first of all, I wonder if uh, you've heard about uh, the epic journey through France uh, that's coming up in May. Uh, visiting sites uh, related to the mysteries of Mary Magdalene and the Divine Feminine. Well, uh, that epic journey or tour is called Mysteries of Mary Magdalene and the Divine Feminine, and it's May 13th through 21st, and it's going to be led by author and intuitive Gloria Amendola, who will be on the show in a couple weeks. She will embark on this epic journey to ancient pilgrimage sites dedicated to Mary Magdalene, the Mother Mary, Isis, Joan of Arc, uh, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, and, of course, Gaia. And throughout the pilgrimage, you'll visit places of profound beauty imbued with earth energy so valued by the guardians of the grail and destinations include places like uh, Lyon, uh, St. Maximum, uh, La Saint Baume, um, St. Marie de la Mer, Rennes-le-Chateau, Montségur, Lourdes, Bordeaux, Orleans, Chartres, Paris, uh, and the journey ends in Paris, oh, one of my favorite places. And, um, and actually, it's going to end in Paris on the night of the full moon, and no doubt there will be something special planned. Uh, so for more details on this incredible tour, you can contact Gloria on Facebook or at her email address, which is holygrailmary at gmail.com. And her website is gloria-amendola.com. Uh, email, I think, might be easier, holygrailmary at gmail.com. And if for some reason that was confusing, please just... Uh, Email me, and I'll be sure you get that uh, information. And, you know, while we're on the subject of great reading, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, I'll, yes, while we're on the subject of uh, of uh, great things related to goddess, whether they be reading or tours, um, I wonder if uh, you've picked up a copy of uh, Sage Woman magazine lately. Uh, maybe you're new to Sage Woman. Uh, and if you are, let me tell you about it and how you can actually get a free issue. You know, maybe you haven't seen a copy of Sage Woman for a while. Well, it celebrates the goddess and every woman for over 30 years, and Sage Woman magazine brings the wisdom of women's spirituality to over 10,000 women every 88-page issue. So for that free issue that I promised, uh, you can get it uh, a couple ways. You can call their toll-free number, 888 888- Sage Woman, 
that's 888-724-3966. And mention you heard it on Karen Tate's Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, radio show. Uh, or you can check out Sage Woman online at uh, sagewoman.com. But for the free sample, uh, you do have to call the 800 number and mention that you heard it here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And um, as I was saying before, while we uh, are on the subject of uh, great reading, uh, there's a book that I want to make sure uh, you know about, and uh, that would be Joe Carson's uh, book. Uh, you know Joe Carson because uh, I've talked about her on the show before. Uh, she uh, had the documentary out, uh, Dancing with Gaia, and uh, actually... I am trying to find your information right now, and it seems to have slipped through my fingers. So I think we'll maybe uh, just come back to that uh, in in a bit. Um, yeah, that's probably the best thing to do. So anyway, um, that just helps us get to Tom all the faster. So uh, I want to unmute uh, Tom right now and... Uh, we're going to be chatting with him. Let me tell you a little bit about Tom. Uh, Tom, if that's, uh, you need to turn the radio off in the background. Excuse me? Tom, you need to turn the radio off in the background because you're echoing in onto the line. I, I, I do not have a radio on in the background. Oh, uh, well, there's something amiss let with me, this connection. Uh, let me, yeah, let me try this. Is that any better? Um, yeah, I think it is. I, now I can't hear myself because I was basically screeching <laughs> uh, oh. into my own ear. <laughs> um, anyway, well, thank you, thank you for that. Thank you for figuring out that little technical difficulty. Uh, and welcome Sorry. to the show, Tom. Um, uh, you are a historian of uh, witchcraft, magic, Western religions, uh, contemporary psychedelia. Uh, and thenogens, uh, and medieval uh, pharmacopoeia. Um, what else would you like uh, my listeners to know about you, Tom, before we start our talk about witch's ointment? Uh, let's see. Um, nothing. <laughs> nothing that would uh, pertain to, to any of this. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know, first of all, let's uh let's start off with the definition because uh just in case, you know, some of my listeners might not be 100% sure what uh ethnogenic means because our show topic is how the ethnogenic sacred feminine was demonized as the witch's ointment. That might be a little bit confusing because I think they might know what the witch's ointment is, but how do the two connect? There. So the the to the first in answer to the first question, the entheogenic uh, was coined by Carl Ruck, who's a classicist at Boston University, as a way to identify certain experiences uh, caused by substances that are not recreational or you know to get your mind blown, but actually have deep spiritual significance to them. Uh, so that's at least in this context what, what I'm using as entheogen. Uh, to be honest with you, I think I might have even misused the word entheogen in the book because many of the experiences I talk about have more to do with uh, what I'm now going to call extheogenic experiences, meaning that you are 
bringing about a goddess or a god outside of you, whereas entheogen, by its definition, means that you're generating it within you. Okay, and um, uh, you so, you yeah, mentioned your well, you mentioned your book. What's the title of your book? The Witch's Ointment: uh, The Secret History of Psychedelic Magic. Okay, okay, and um, so. Talk about the witch's ointment uh, for a moment, um, you know, just so we're all on the same page. Sure. The the witch's ointment is a theological concept, uh, meaning that uh, what a witch ointment is is an ointment rubbed um, by uh, usually a woman, but sometimes a man, but usually a woman, on some kind of flying implement. That could be a broom, a rake, a shovel, a stick, a stove, uh, any kind of different thing. And... Um, this allows that, that implement, uh, whether it be a broom or a rake, to fly, and it allows the witch to fly to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a uh, congregation. Again, this is all in, invented by theologians. Um, the idea, the conceptualization of the Sabbath was this place where people went to congregate and learn uh, maleficia, which is harmful magic, uh, they would uh, renounce Christianity, they would worship the devil, they would fornicate with demons, um, they would feast on the bodies of dead children and drink their blood. Um, so that's what a witch's ointment is. Now, that, that didn't exist in history. Uh, what didn't exist, excuse me, what did exist in history um, were several kinds of um, magical uses for these substances, some of which were entheogenic, as I call it in the book, but again, I, I might say that it's more extheogenic, um, meaning that there were people who seemed to have been trying to communicate with fertility goddesses by falling into a trance using these ointments, and not just ointments, but also powders, potions, fumigations, things like that. And they would fall into these trances and believe that they were engaging the supernatural, uh, or rather the divine, the divinely supernatural. Um, at around the early 1400s, theologians had convinced themselves that people did fly to the devil, and uh, they were a little confused, though, because they had some cognitive dissonance. They were all, they, well, not all of them, but many of them were, were sure that people were doing this, were flying to the devil, but nobody had ever actually seen somebody fly to the devil. So how were they actually doing it? Well, the, the, um, the debate point by some... Um, uh, some theologians was, well, they're using those ointments. You know those ointments that we know about that physicians use to put someone into a deep sleep so they can operate on them? Well, they're using those same things, but they believe that they're, you know, flying to these kind of Bacchanalian celebrations, um, you know, on the Huberg, which in English would be Hay Mountain. Um, I don't know if I'm getting too far off topic, but would... Um, the, the 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 premise of the of the um, the thesis behind demonizing the entheogenic sacred feminine is that some theologians took these ointments that people were using to communicate with fertility goddesses and reimagined them as what people know as the witch's ointment. Okay, so let me make sure I'm I'm understanding you. So my going into this um, conversation, uh, I, I've actually spoken to 
people who are Wiccans who believe that there was really a thing called the witch's ointment. And, in fact, they would even say what some of the ingredients were. And basically they were hallucinogens that um, that helped you have some sort of a, uh, you know, go into a trance state, have some sort of hallucinogenic experience. And while you were doing that, uh, sometimes they thought maybe they communed with the divine. Uh, and now, are you? Uh, but, but the difference you're saying is, um, uh, it, it, theologians thought these people who used these hallucinogens actually went someplace, like you know, to these sabbats. Is is that the distinction, or am I still confused? Well, it's it's a very confusing thing because different theologians had different ideas. Um, so you have some who believed that a person literally did fly corporally through the air. You had others uh, who believed that this was kind of what we might call a crime and animae, a crime of the soul, meaning that because the people uh, who use these ointments believed their experiences to have happened in the body, then they were just as guilty as if it had actually happened in the body. Oh, kind of like I think wasn't it Jimmy Carter? It, 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 because he had uh, sexual thoughts about a woman, it was as bad. Uh, oh God, I'm going, I'm dating myself now. But wasn't that a controversy <laughs> at a time? You know, it was a, it was a sin, even if he thought it, even if he didn't do it. Kind of, kind of like that. Uh, yeah, in a sense, it's like that. It's that whole idea of you know, like the, uh, the thought itself is the sin. Right, 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 right. Okay. Uh, but there wasn't uh, there there wasn't actually a witch's ointment. Like that so that you, didn't. What? So so you're so you're saying you don't think there really was a physical ointment or salve or something like that that they used. No, back there then? were. No, no, no. There 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 were those. There just wasn't anything that that like a, a person like let's say I wanted to buy one of these ointments from you. I wouldn't say, hey, Karen, do you have one of those witches' ointments? You know, they, like, that that term is not, you know, a real thing. The ointments did exist, but people used them for a variety of reasons. Um, they didn't just use them for entheogenic, per- or rather exogenic, exogenic purposes. They used them for a, a host of things. Uh, they used them to bewitch a neighbor. They might use them to prophecy. Uh, they might use them recreationally. Uh, they used them for, you know, almost every kind of magical practice there was. There, there might have been a way to fit these substances into it. Not all magic is based on these substances. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't make that mistake. But it's more of like people would incorporate it into their magical practices. Again, right, it's right. a very confusing picture. Um, it took me ten years to figure it out, and I still don't think I have it figured out. <laughs> Um, well, well, yeah. I mean, I can imagine using sacred hallucinogens, if you want to call the witch's ointment a sacred hallucinogen, uh, in a in a you know in in a in a ritual practice. If you were trying to uh, you know do divination, or I mean, we know the Egyptians had the porch of drunkenness, and the masses would get you know stinking drunk, hoping that they would get you know, that, it, that the alcohol would bring them to a state where they would commune with the divine. Um, I mean, it's I, I, unless I'm still not getting it, I don't really see the difference. No, there isn't much of a difference. I mean, there's, 
I guess it, it's different in that um, these people seem to have done this uh, in a private setting in, in uh, during the early modern period. It wasn't like a big massive gathering or anything like that. Or at least oh, we I... don't have any records of what's that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, now, now I think I'm getting the distinction. It's not like there was a, a there was a group orgy and everybody did this together. It might have no. just been. An, it, it might have been. You know. Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, a, a, for lack of a better word, let's just call it a small coven, uh, or a few people working together. Uh, but it wasn't like this was this big public event that the town came to. Yeah, and it doesn't even seem to have been. Um engaged by um, several people at the same time. It really does seem to have been a very private practice. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, to go into a trance state, um, although, you know, you think about the Yorubans, you know, they they go into a trance state in a public fashion uh, where the, uh, you know, the deity or the loa sort of rides them, and that's a very public uh, you know, tr- sort of trance-inducing experience that's, uh, you know, that's done with a number of people. But I, I, I guess, at least from my limited experiences, most of this kind of stuff is done a bit more privately than that. Yeah, it, it, it seems so. The, in fact, the only um, the only record we have of people gathered together to do this, you know, like in, in conjunction, um, it, it's kind of hard to tell whether or not the... Um, the, the scribe who wrote out the account and made that up, or if this person actually did get together with others to, you know, rub the salve uh, on themselves and fly away. It's uh, it's difficult to tell. Um, it can go either way. Uh, maybe some people, again, it's not inconceivable that a few people might have done this, you know, together. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have been what was going on. Uh, a lot of the, the areas in Europe didn't have, they weren't overrun with witches or anything, or sorcerers or shamans or healers. You might have one for every three or four towns and villages, you know, within walking distance. Right. So who well, is this? Who is this priestess? Who is this? So who's the who is she actually getting together to do this with? Well, nobody. There's nobody else there that understands her religion. Right, right. Well, unless you know, we're we're talking about uh, you know the what are, what are the the Wiccans? You know the uh, you know the, uh, oh God, my uh, my uh, history is failing me now. But you know the the people who who live close to nature. You know the midwives, the people that uh, you know you know they know what plants to pick. You know they're the healers of the town. Um, I mean, I could see where um, you know where the those sorts of people would know, you know, which of these herbs you would put into an ointment to make a hallucinogen. Um, but, but like you said, I mean, it probably wasn't, you know, every household was doing this by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but sure. does this? But what I'm thinking is um, uh, the, this idea of. Um, of the witches, I mean, does this uh, you know play at all into like the witch burning times, um, you know, in the witch stereotype? Because I mean, you know, there's a, a mainstream witch stereotype, uh, but mm-hmm. the reality is probably much more, uh, you know, that these people, like I said, were the you know the midwives and healers of the village, um, but not so much midwives. Okay. Right. Well, so so tell me tell me about the Midwi- witch stereotype. Midwives, and- uh, 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 just real quick, because it, it, it's a common misconception. 
uh, today, midwives were licensed. Midwives did not run into these kinds of troubles. Midwives were not the people having these kinds of experiences. Um, they, or, I mean, if they were, they weren't being rounded up or arrested for it or anything like that. Um, it wasn't so much the midwives. It was really that local healer that was not licensed. That's where the problem was. Well, well, well. I guess the word license gives me pause because you know everything I've ever read about the witch burnings is you know it sort of became a cottage industry, and one of the um, you know one of the you know sort of um, insidious parts of it was you know was the male doctors who re, you know who wanted the business of the midwives you know that sort of also played into getting you know burning the women who were the uh who were the midwives because you know they were competing with the doctors for their business so do you do you mean licensed in a literal sense yeah yeah what i what i mean is those those people that you're referring to that the doctors were in competition with those were yeah. not midwives. The midwives were also in competition with those local healers. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a educated you know or it wasn't educated male physicians versus women. It was educated physicians, either man or woman, against uneducated physicians, either man or woman. Oh, okay. Well, this is a, definitely a different take on all of this. And what sort of time period are you are, are you talking about? Well, the the formulation of the witch stereotype occurred in the mid 1400s, so the 15th century. Um, the the stuff I deal with in the book is mostly around that time. Uh, I mean, I, I go you know some centuries earlier as well, but the 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 crux of the narrative takes place pretty much between 1428 and 1438. Okay, okay, and so. Um all right, and, and I, I know you started to say this, and I interrupted you, so I apologize. Tell me no, okay. the witch. Tell me the witch stereotype again, and how that. Uh, how did the witch's ointment fit into the stereotype? Sure, the um, the, the witch stereotype uh, again is a theological conception about what witches actually did and what they engage with, and the stereotype is is pretty much this amalgam of different ideas, certain things like um, fears over heretics and heretics meeting up in secret. That's where the idea of the Sabbath comes from. The idea that witches met up is, comes from an earlier stereotype, a stereotype about heretics. The idea that they met up to worship the devil comes from the practices of male magicians during the, uh, the uh, Renaissance and sometime before that, the 1400s, uh, 1500s, things like that. Um, the uh, the idea of flight uh, comes from folklore, and um, uh, that it, that's pretty much there's your stereotypical witch. And what the witch's ointment did was serve to uh, it, it served for theologians to say, yeah, people, even though we've never actually seen somebody flying, well, that's because they're at home in their bed having these experiences but the experience is so real that we can actually, you know, come down on them for having it. I but see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now now the pieces are fitting together for me a, a little bit better. Okay. Yeah, okay. very complicated picture and most of the stuff uh out there, most of the literature on this is really not 
based on anything, uh, um, I don't know, anything that I would look at um, at all. All right, and and as far as the ointment goes, um, uh, you you said that you you did or you didn't find evidence that such a thing actually uh, existed. I found a lot of evidence that it existed. And it, do you, was it a typical um, ingredient, or was it a you know did it vary from place to place? It, it varied um, in places like let's say if you lived in or around a large town that had an apothecary, uh, you might have access to exotic things like opium, mandrake, maybe even cannabis. Um, but if you weren't, if you were you know nowhere near a place that had an apothecary, um, you might rely more on henbane, belladonna, uh, toad venom, things that you could walk into a forest and find. Right, 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 right. Um, and now, where were you able to find um, these sorts of records? Uh, a lot of them are uh, medical records. A lot of them are found in uh, medical treatises and just physicians writing about them. Okay. Um, you mean the use or the effects or uh, I, yeah, I would imagine... Well, so so you could literally well i i mean well i, sh- I shouldn't say you uh, let me rephrase the question um could you literally create your own witch's ointment based on the writings you came across uh you could uh one of the problems is that uh, the p- physicians and and people that wrote medical texts in those days uh weren't as careful as we are today <laughs> they didn't have you know uh, um you know all these you know the laws in place and things like that. So a lot of the recipes will just say, you know, add some opium, add some menstrual blood, add yolk from an egg, add some henbane, mix well into an ointment, give it to somebody. <laughs> and that's it. So, so, so there weren't any units of measure. What's that? So there was, so there weren't, uh, there wasn't a lot of units of measure uh, to Not sort so of much. be... It'd be accurate. You could get yourself into a lot of trouble because some of those uh, things, you, some of those ingredients you mentioned, I mean, could even cause death. I think in the wrong amount. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. Most most of these substances in high doses do cause death, and the um, you, you'll have the the medical writers talking about this and saying how you know can one one um one physician said that it caused a quote uh, pleasant kind of madness. Uh, close quote. Uh, but to be careful, because if you up the dose beyond that, it'll kill you. Right, right. Well, you know, I've had Carl Ruck on the show, and I've also had David Hillman. David Hillman wrote um, uh, the Chemical Muse, so the and Chemical it, Muse. That's it. Yeah, and uh, and you know, and you were talking about how they would put, you know, uh, it was there was this idea that they would point put the ointment on the end of a broom or something and insert it. Uh, and David actually talked about that. Uh, be, in fact, in the in the uh, ancient world, in like Greece, for instance, uh, he sh- you know he sent sent me pictures of these. Um, well, I'm going to call them artifacts, but they were uh, interesting phallus-looking um, 
uh, artifacts that they would actually use to apply the ointments because uh, sometimes these medicines, they weren't always hallucinogens, but sometimes the medicines that they would use either vaginally or anally, um, they couldn't be taken you know, down. You know, you couldn't swallow them because the stomach acids would destroy the effectiveness. So they had to be absorbed uh, either uh, vaginally or, um, you know, the in the other way. So that that was really how you inserted them. But somehow, you know, when you when people talk about the witch's ointment, you know, it kind of gets sort of this creep factor. You know, as if it was, um, it it wasn't really for uh healing purposes it was um i don't know it it's just kind of got this this other connotation to it um the word isn't coming to me but it kind a sort of a sleaze factor or something um sure. it, i don't know it, am, am i making any sense uh you 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 are um i i believe that dr hillman is um speaking about a very popular myth uh, for which there is absolutely no evidence for. No. What that that they the, that the, they the insertion the yeah the idea of rubbing the ointments on brooms or these objects to insert them into uh, the vagina or anus it was invented in 1973 uh, by a man named Michael Horner who um, proposed the idea as conjecture didn't even pretend to have evidence for it, never said he had ev- any evidence for it, but we're in the age of narrative over fact, especially with the Internet, so it's a very intriguing, you know, idea, so people believe it. But there's actually, I'm, when I first started my research 10 years ago, I also believed that. Um, I bet you anything that Dr. Hillman, however, cannot find a single record of anyone ever doing this, ever. Huh. Well, you know, I'm still in touch with him. I'll have to ask him. I remember when I saw those artifacts he sent, um, you know, pictures that, you know, of of these artifacts that date back to, oh, I, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, bef- you know, before medieval times, certainly, uh, before the 14th century, you know, that they used in Greece. I mean, you could see that these, I, I don't know, it was very believable that these might have been objects, um, you know, that would have been, in, you know, that you could very easily have put it, put an ointment on or a hallucinogen on and inserted it and uh, and absorbed it that way rather than smoking it or swallowing it or something like that. But, people um, absolutely did. People, let me, if I may real quick, I'm sorry to interrupt. People absolutely did absorb these ointments through their vaginas and rectums, without a doubt. They just didn't use brooms to do it. They well, were right. any any kind of, uh, you know, let's say, for lack of a better term, dildo. <laughs> Nobody right, right. did that. And and to say that there are figurines from ancient Greece that are phallic looking, yeah, of course there are. Now, where do we get from a, a phallic, you know, kind of statuette, whatever, how do we go from that to, well, a hallucinogenic ointment was rubbed on it and people masturbated with it. Like, there's a big leap getting to that, and I'm I'm not so sure that, and I like Dr. Hillman's work, I like the chemical muse, but I, uh, I have to object to that particular um, myth. It just, there's no record of it. And uh, again, okay. you're in touch with him. Ask him to produce one, one, just one record of anyone ever having done that and see what he can Okay. Out. All right. I mean, fair enough. I mean, I didn't challenge him on it because it, 
seemed no plausible to me. You know, it, I mean, it yeah, seemed. Well, no I mean, it does. seemed plausible. You know. Um, yes, we call that sophistry. <laughs> when something is plausible but wholly untrue, we have a word for that. It's called sophistry. Okay. 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 All right. All right. Um, so, um, in in your research, what were maybe some of the more surprising things um, you uh, unearthed? Let's see. Well, that was a big one. Um, the 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 concept that that people didn't actually masturbate with ointment, hallucinogenic ointment covered brooms. That was the biggest shock to me. Um, another big shock to me was that. Before the 1300s, the majority of witches burned were all male, not female. Um, There's actually a case from 1438, a guy named uh, Peter Vellen, who was a male witch, was actually tried and executed by a female judge, Eleanor Provolia. That was a big surprise as well. Um, The idea that it wasn't, you know, uh, elite man against poor woman but elite man and woman against poor man and woman was also a surprise because if you read any of the you know the the literature on neo paganism or neo wiccanism, they're all going to say that that was the case. They're not going to offer any evidence for it, of course. They're just going to say that that was the case. But when you actually look at the evidence, it wasn't like that at all. Okay. Just like today, well, the green green money <laughs> class is what counts. It's not a gender right. thing. It's a class thing. Right, right, right. Uh, well, and, and wait, and let's let's unpack each of those individually because sure. there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, well, first of mm-hmm. all, I I wouldn't have necessarily believed the broom. Okay, that's that's a little bit too far fetched. I mean, as a woman, I can't imagine using a broom handle. Okay, I mean yeah, that think that's of the just. Uh, yeah, I mean that's just, think just of the <laughs> exactly. That's that's crazy. I mean, you know, yeah, that that's crazy. Um, other things maybe like those images, you know, Dr. Hillman showed me that looked plausible, but I know we've already covered that. Um, but now you but, said oh, just, uh, just on that, if I could ask, wait, could I ask one thing about it? Just, sure, yeah. Um, as far as the the plausibility of like the the phallic statuettes, yeah. How many lower class? Um, Sorceresses living in poverty in the 1400s, does Dr. Hillman believe had access to those South statuettes? How this, many does we he believe actually had? <laughs> but well, but we weren't really talking about the 1400s either. We were talking oh, much it. earlier than that. We were talking about like in, you know, in Greece and Rome, and uh, you know, maybe, sure. uh, you know, yeah. But 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 I get your point. I mean, you know, the poor person isn't going to have access to something like that. You know, maybe only the higher classes uh, mm-hmm. would. But that, I mean, that's not to say it didn't happen. You know, the rich didn't do it. Um, you know, but uh, but yeah, sure. Maybe. But then what, what we would need is an actual case of a rich person doing this. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, what I mean? like, he, like we would actually need something there <laughs> that, that, that yeah, yeah. supports the idea. Well, I, I mean, yeah. Well, uh, David is, has been um, uh, David has been on the show a number of times, and, and he's he's actually well liked by listeners, and oh, this gives absolutely. me a good good excuse to get him back. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh, but, and don't and, get and, me wrong. Chemical Muse is a great book. I I really liked it. I just no, I but, happen but, to disagree with him on that. Well, I I know, and and you know, and and maybe he made an educated guess. You know, maybe he made an assumption, and uh, and like I said, you know, I didn't challenge him on that. But the other thing you you said in some of the research that surprised you, you mentioned. Um, 
you know, you, you, you were saying that, you know, that it was a, a woman judge who actually put a man to death for witchcraft. Go back to that. Sure. A man named uh, Peter Vallon uh, was tried in 1438 um, for common sorcery, and um, we just know from from the dossiers that it was a female judge. Um, you know, that's uh, we don't we don't really know too much about it. We don't know much about her. Uh, we just know that there was a female judge. And I want to make it sound like that that was something that happened often <laughs> because it didn't. It was just you know, you know the context of the the question. Uh, was you know what surprised me, and that right. really surprised me. And, and do you remember? Um, you know, there was also do, Queen Fred. What's that? Do you remember where that was? Um, that particular incident. Uh, yeah, that I believe um, it was in one of the Germanic areas, uh, Simmental, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was either Bern or Simmental are coming to mind. I do not quite remember. And and what country is that? It wasn't one yet. We're 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 talking about the the Swiss and German kind of, you know, confederated states. There there's not there's no modern borders yet. Gotcha, gotcha. And so, but but your contention is it wasn't this, um, it wasn't this gender side thing, the witch burnings. It wasn't uh, primarily women who were the victims. You're saying it was more a class thing where it was the rich. Um, maybe well, you know, trying to get the land of the poor or something like that. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I've happened. heard. So it, it, there, it's weird because it depends on what time and place, you know, one is referring to. The the witch stereo. What, why people tend to believe that witches were more commonly women, uh, actually derives straight from the minds of theologians. <laughs> so it's one of those ironies of modern life. Is you have people that call themselves Wiccan that actually are basing part of their belief off of a theologically created stereotype, which is one of those well, interesting... <laughs> well, but, but don't you... Well, I mean, I would just imagine, don't you think uh, part of what would suggest uh, that, you know, maybe they went after women was the misogyny? I mean, just the, sh- the hatred of women? I mean, after all, they were yes. uh, representations of Eve's sin, you know? Yes, eventually, and that, that's uh, something I wanted to follow up with. When you, when you get into the, the what's called popularly the burning times, which is roughly 15, you know, 50 to 1650, um, then, yes, absolutely, the majority of women burned, uh, excuse me, the majority of witches burned were women, but that's only because the stereotype had been created a century earlier in the late 1400s, or mid, I should say, mid to late 1400s, that dictated that a woman was more likely to be a witch. But before that time, you know, there's no, a witch is just as much a man as it is a woman. Um, uh, Richard Kierkefer, in his great book uh, called uh, European Witch Trials, has a calendar of witch trials at the back as an appendix, and I mean, anybody could see for themselves that plenty of men were burned for witchcraft before the uh, the formulation of the witch stereotype. And then some men were burned, but not on the level that women were. Okay, okay. And it and you can and and you believe it, it was more related to uh you know, a class struggle than it really was about people worried these folks were in cahoots with the devil? Uh, it depends. 
It, it, again, it, one of the, the things about uh, medieval witch beliefs is, and early modern witch beliefs is you have to really take them by, on a case-by-case basis. There, there's so much diversity in the records, which is why they invented a stereotype, <laughs> so to speak, because it's so different, because from one case to another it's... I mean, most of the cases start with an accusation from a neighbor who perceives harm by a local healer. I mean, that's the bulk of it. The idea that, you know, you know, theologians were just kicking down doors in the 1400s, 1500s and dragging women out of their homes, accusing them of witchcraft is total nonsense. Witchcraft accusations began in secular courts. And at some point, if it was not resolved, then an inquisitor was brought in. Then you have all the diabolical underpinnings that you find, you know, with an inquisitorial, you know, kind of nut job and the way they're, really kind of screwed up minds worked. But you don't find that in the secular records. The secular records are, are very important to the historians. So, all right, all right, so let, okay, about this. Um, one of the other things that I've always heard about the witch burnings and uh, was was that some of this was, you know, and and the people who, uh, like Salem, for instance, when you know the you know people were acting crazy, um, you know, I, I've read, I mean, not that long ago, that uh, sometimes these people, uh, you know, carried on in these uh, strange ways it was because of the mold on the grain, and I think they were showing that that was something that actually happened in Europe as well as you know, what we found out about Salem. Does that factor into any of this um, in your research at all? Absolutely. That that fungus is called ergot, uh, E-R-G-O-T. It grows on a diseased rye grain. It's the base element for which they formed LSD. Um, And... um, that uh, that did happen. It didn't happen in Salem. I've, I've, I've read that as well. That actually is, is traceable back to um, one book called Poisons of the Past by an author named Matosin. Um, Mary Matosin, I believe her name was. Uh, but it's been pretty much debunked uh, in Salem. It did, it did happen in continental Europe, though. That, that absolutely. And I document it. Um, I document when we, we can see that. And we also have... Uh, some people from Norway who would utilize the ergot and knowingly give it to people to kind of indoctrinate them into, you know, witch beliefs or, or whatnot. Um, so people were aware of, of of that. It just, I don't know that. It, I, I would disagree that that's what happened in Salem. What happened in Salem seems to have been a couple of very oppressed, because of their time and place, uh, teenage girls who were acting out. Uh, because they wanted attention, and it it snowballed from there. Um, the the difference in ergot cases, uh, you could tell when there's a difference because the the people that are under you know the influence, so to speak, of ergot can't turn on and turn off, you know, the vertigo and the visions and the hallucinations and the vomiting. Um, the, the the girls from Salem, well, they were able to turn that off, on and off, like a light switch, <laughs> meaning that that wasn't what was going on. Uh, they seem to have really just been seeking attention in a very patriarchal and very oppressive Salem, Massachusetts. 
Right, right. All right, and and as far as the you know the the witch, I, I mean, are you talking about a time that's separate from the Inquisition? Because I mean, the Inquisition wasn't just you know they weren't just going after people who were witches. I mean, they were going after uh, people who weren't um, Catholic or uh, or Christian too, weren't they? I mean, they were. You had to convert or die, I mean, if you were another religion, if you were a pagan, if you were a Jew? Um, well, the the Inquisition began with um, heretics and heresy and rooting out, you know, heretics and things like that. It was only after it was determined that witchcraft counted as a form of heresy, and that was in, um, what was it, the University of Paris? Uh, 13, oh, I don't remember, it was either 1398 or 1402, one of those years, it was around there, uh, they had determined that all acts of magic were heretical beliefs, and that was also solidified at the Council of Basel, which lasted from uh, 1430 to uh, 1445. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I'm, I think I'm... I'm going very off question. What, if you could refresh, what was the question again? I'm sorry. Um, now I forgot. <laughs> oh, I'm contagious. I'm, <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I lost. I lost my train of thought now because I was oh, so following, I. F- following, following your, uh, following your route there. Uh, oh, oh, the oh. Inquisitions of, about you know yes. they they oppressed you know anybody her. who wasn't Christian. Oh no, because. Um, Jews weren't, uh, again, the the thing with the the Inquisition wasn't this, like, solidified body where people met up and they, you know, like the Pentagon or something. The Inquisition was, you know, it was a case-by-case thing. You you wouldn't, you know, it's weird because it's hard to speak about it using, like, without using the term Inquisition. So we use it, it, like, uh, medievalists kind of use it for ease. But it was more of, okay, there's this report of a heretic. You'll send an inquisitor, you know, which wasn't, you know, it was just a theologian who would take on that role of being an inquisitor, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but but I don't I don't know. When I hear you describe it, it makes it sound like it um, it wasn't as big a deal and it wasn't as widespread or rampant as I guess the impression I had. You know, I had it, that it I had the because not until the 1400s it wasn't. Okay, so it depends on the time period you're talking about. Yeah, it every everything with with regards to. Um, witchcraft and history and history of witchcraft, all of it has to do with time and place and the person as well. Because So let's say you have um, two different individuals who uh, dealt with heretics. You have a guy, um, uh, what was his name? Um, oh, great. Now I'm uh, Peter Gryas from Bern. And you have Johann Nitter, um, who was um, a German as well. Now, both of those individuals believed that there were witches, they believed that there were heretics, and both of them went about dealing with witches and heretics completely differently, whereas uh, Peter Grias would happily hunt out a heretic and burn them without hesitation. Johann Nitter actually never tried or burned a single heretic or witch. He was far more of a heretic negotiator than he was a heretic hunter. 
So it's not just time and place, because these guys were around in the same time and place. You also have to break it down, I was saying before, on case by case. Who was the person actually running the trial? You know, because it could go one way or the other, depending on, you know, is this person a witch-hunting fanatic like Gry is, or is he a very sensible, even-tempered individual like Knitter? Which okay. One? And you have to well, kind of, you know... Yeah, well, that makes sense, and and I guess again, you know, you have to, you know, uh, clarify time and place. But uh, you know, so much of the stuff I read, you know, was you know a cottage industry actually even developed, you know, uh, because it became so lucrative to be ferreting out, you know, all of these witches. You know, it uh, it it became an economy, um, um. but. It, it, so we have some evidence of that, and there was um, a guy named Jacques Dubois who actually instigated the first major witch scare in European history. That was in uh, 1459 into 1460, and his targets uh, his targets were wealthy men. So you're right. It was I mean it was uh, he went after the wealthy men because they had the money. Um, mm-hmm. so it, very much. I mean, maybe in England later on in the 1600s, it might have been a cottage industry, but at this time, it absolutely was not. The 13, 14, 1500s. Um, okay. They, I, there's no evidence at all that it was, you know, that it was this cottage industry of accusing. Again, most of the accusations began with, you know, neighbors, neighbor on neighbor. It, it right. happened. An accusation started when I brought, like, you're, you're going to have your other guest is Starhawk, right? That's coming on mm-hmm. after me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I let's say hypothetically I have a young daughter. I don't have any kids in real life, but in, in this example, I have a young daughter who's four years old. Now, I bring my four-year-old daughter to see Starhawk, who is this known healer in the community, and she lives with total immunity as a healer. Now, my child's disease, my four-year-old daughter's disease, unfortunately could not be cured, and she dies. I then, me, just a citizen, accused Starhawk of witchcraft. I'm not an inquisitor. I'm not any kind of authority figure. I'm just some poor farmer trying to get by the next day. I accused Starhawk of witchcraft. Now, according to this new stereotype, witches don't work alone. They work in groups. Even though, let's say, Starhawk is a a solo practitioner, she completely works by herself. So Starhawk is brought in, and they bring her into the secular courts, and they're not getting anything out of her, right? So they might then bring in an inquisitor who's going to employ inquisitorial procedure, otherwise known as torture. So once they start tightening the thumbscrews on Starhawk, she's going to start saying whatever they want. So they're going to start saying, well, you know, you really killed Tom's daughter, right? You meant to, right? And she's going to say, no, no, of course not. And they're going to tighten the thumbscrews. And then say to her, well, if you just admit it, we'll let you go. And then she's going to admit it. And then they're going to say, oh, so you're a witch, and they're not going to let her go. And they're going to say, well, we know you guys are working together, so who are the other witches? And Starwick says, no one, no one, no one. So then, you know, they put the red-hot poker up to her chest, and she says, oh, my God, Karen Tate over in the next village. She's also in on this, right? Now, Karen, you don't even know. You know, you have no dealings with her whatsoever, but Starhawk is trying to get that red-hot poker away from her. So she's going to say whatever she needs to say for that to happen. So now they come back to you and they say, okay, Karen, you you were name-dropped in a trial, and right? And it starts what, all over again. And it starts, and then you point your finger at me. And yeah. now the irony comes full circle. The very person who began the trials is now brought in to be inquested. Ah, 
Isn't that interesting? And I'm going to be That's burned it. right alongside <laughs> you and Starhawk. And well, I'm you deserved it. Burned. You deserved it. You started it all. It. <laughs> I started it all. So you see what I'm saying? But it's not going to end with me. I'm going to also, well, my wife or my neighbor or this. And that's how you get these large numbers and these large burnings. It always starts with a single accusation, all of them. And then it snowballs. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, Well, we have uh, just a little bit of time left here. Um, uh, So let me ask you if it's it's a quick uh, answer. Matusia de Francesco, uh, who was she? Why was she important? Matusia de Francesco, la striga de Casa Ripabianca. And I was going to say, like all these answers, I don't think there's a such thing as a short answer to historical witchcraft, but I'll try. Um, What what makes Matucha so important is that you can actually see in her record the imposition of inquisitorial ideas onto her folk practices. The whole first part of her record are all these very, uh, you know, it's amazing. It's this amazing just... uh, trove of folk magical practices. And then all of a sudden, as soon as she applies her magical ointment, that's like the hinge, and it sends the trial into this whole other, you know, surrealistic realm where she's now flying to Satan and, you know, sucking the blood out of children and what have you. And you could actually watch the Inquisitors force their idea into her mouth. That's huh. what makes Matucha so important. Well, you know, it, it you get the impression that these were pretty weak-minded people. You know, does it? You know, is does it? Can it be um, attributed maybe to um, to ignorance? You know, I mean, most of these people were not very well educated. I wouldn't think. Which ones? Do you mean the 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 healer, the public, the inquisitor, the theologian? Oh uh, well, which... you know the 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 you know I, I guess maybe well I don't know the these inquisitors um, I don't know I have the, these stereotypes in my head too you know that they're these misogynistic sadists uh, you some know or were, in, but not all of them are. And paranoid, too, you know what I mean? They see things that aren't there, kind of this idea if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, um, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, In fact, uh, one uh, before, real quick, just to to underscore what you're saying, uh, there was a, uh, that man, Peter Breyers, one night, actually, uh, who I was mentioned earlier, how nuts he was. He got up one night, you know, to go to the bathroom, whatever. He literally fell down the stairs, which is, you know, these narrow corridors, and he burned people for witchcraft because they said they did it. And, I mean, it was just because this clumsy idiot fell down the stairs, he executed people for it. Yeah, it, it feels like it was a scary time to live, you know, because you feels like you were very vulnerable because common sense might not take hold. But yet, I mean, you see that happening in the world today, you know. I mean, uh, crazy stuff happens that you, yeah, but it you was know, common sense. It was common sense. It just it wasn't. It's just pre-scientific common sense. That's all. People, people, three, four hundred years ago were no smarter than we are today. We don't have bigger brain. Not that brain size matters, but you know what I mean. Like we're not we're not any smarter than they were. We just have different methods of finding truth. That's that's the only difference. We just have scientific methodology now that they didn't have. You know, to somebody in ancient Greece. If you're if it's springtime and somebody says, "Oh wow, it's springtime," you know, uh, 
how do you know, let's say, Persephone came back from AIDS, so everyone says, you know, an ancient Grecian will say to you, well, look, the flowers are blooming. Look, there are, you know, rabbits populating. Look, there, there's vegetation everywhere. And you say back to them, yeah, yeah. But how do you know that that's caused by Persephone coming back? And they're going to look at you like you're an idiot and say, because <laughs> look at the trees, look at the garden. You see what I'm saying? It's just a different way of ascertaining information, but they're not stupider than we were. I, I think people today actually are probably stupider than people were 400 years ago, mostly because of the Internet. Well, you know, sometimes I, I have to admit, sometimes I do think that too. <laughs> um, well, Tom, um, we would... Uh, have an excuse would, 400 years ago. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we don't. Well, yeah, we the don't. Internet definitely, definitely is a double-edged sword. I mean, the, the emails that come, that come into my inbox, uh, it's just unbelievable stuff. But, uh, like yeah, we you're going to get, get a lot of hate mail over me. I'm warning you right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I can take it. Um, yeah. So, Tom, uh, what's uh, what's your plans for a, a follow-up book? Is is there one? Yes, I'm um, currently working on. Uh, so earlier, I was talking about how um, I think that in in when talking about the fertility goddess worship of um, uh, during the early modern period, how it wasn't so much entheogenic, even though I call it that erroneously throughout the entire book. It was more expiogenic. Uh, the book I'm working on now is actually the evolution of that experience in the West, starting with um, ancient Greece and Rome, which I call uh, somtheogenic because they were actually communicating with these goddesses and gods in sleep and in dreams. Um, somtheogenic became extheogenic, um, which is I then move into... Um, uh, pretty much the, the talk uh, about demonizing the entheogenic sacred feminine, and I'm going to get into some ritual magicians who used uh, these substances and why and how they use them. Um, and then that's going to lead into the Victorian era with guys like Ar- Aleister Crowley and uh, using it in magic and guys like Yeats using it in creative endeavors. And then finally today we've reached entheogenic. So it's pretty much it's going to be a three-part book about how the concept of entheogenism evolved over the centuries in the West. Well, I hope you'll keep my name, and when you have that book out, get in touch with me, and I'll have you back on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh so just you know, so that we so that we come. Um, well, well, wait. Before I, I do that, I want to ask you from what you just said about the next book in 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 that first section about you know the people would go to sleep and meet the gods and goddesses. Is that sort of like a dream? You know, the dream incubation. Is it that, or is it something else? I'm I'm I'm, I'm unfamiliar with dream incubation. Well, in um, in Greece and Egypt, uh, different places in the ancient world, uh, it was a form of healing. Um, they would actually, you know, go to these healing centers. Um, oh, and yes, 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 that's right. Yeah, and they would go to sleep and hopefully have a dream that would give them some clue to what they needed to do to heal themselves. And I mean, who knows how you know how much of it was psychological versus uh, you know physiological. But you know, I know that was one of the things uh, they used to do for healing sometimes. And I didn't know Absolutely. if that was part of uh, you know part of that early part of the book for that you know. Ah uh, yes. Um... Not, it's more of, I mean, I'm going to touch upon that a little bit, 
but it has more to do with the the worship of uh, the gods and fertility goddesses mostly. Um, uh, right now I'm working on uh, Hera because uh, she's one of the few um, goddesses of old that we actually know uh, the plant that was sacred to her, and that plant happens to be marijuana, <laughs> uh, as recorded by uh, Pasianus um, in, I think, was it the second century, and also uh, Galen uh, writes about it. We only know that Assyrian, the Greek word for marijuana, we know that from Galen, who, who clarifies for us in one of his medical works that that's what Asterian is, and uh, that was sacred to Hera. To Hera. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Well, mm-hmm. we will we'll definitely have to get you back. And and just to come full circle, uh, because I I was I have to admit I was so confused in the beginning. How um, h- um, how did we connect the athenogenic uh, sacred feminine? How uh, how was that demonized because of the witch witch's ointment again? I I kind of <laughs> forgot that part. Well, I, yeah, we <laughs> we never even we never even got to that. <laughs> okay, um, okay. So w- w- in short, in short, the short of it is that um, people were using the ointments to commune with fertility goddesses. Okay. And that's what was demonized because at the time, as I'm sure your listeners know, I'm sure you know as well, uh, there were two forces in the universe. There was God and Jesus on one side, and there was the devil on the other. And if it wasn't God slash Jesus, it was defaulted to the devil. So when they found people falling into these trances to worship fertility goddesses, that's what they demonized as a trip to the Sabbath and as a trip to meet Satan. They weren't meeting up with fertility goddesses, these people. They were meeting up with the devil. That is the demonization, in a nutshell, the demonization of the entheogenic sacred feminine. I got it. I got it. So they lumped the pagans uh, and the ointments they thought they were using. Uh, they they demonized it because it wasn't Christian. Yes, because they were communicating with a with a deity, a female deity who was a non Christian. You know. Contestant. Got it. So got it. Got it. Well, I'm glad I asked you. Of, yeah. <laughs> well, it's well, I'm glad. Like, Just because this might help, because I know how complicated the topic is. We have, um, like, do you have a you have a car, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. You drive a car. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine for a moment, like the so when we're talking about did the ointments exist? Yes, the ointments existed. Now you take your car and you go, you drive it to let's say a um, a meeting of your your fellow witches, Wiccans, whatever, right? Some yeah. theologian comes along and says that you're actually driving to meet the devil. Right. So it's the car existed. It's the interpretation of what that car does that is the demonizing, you know, that we see the demonization process. The ointments existed. People used them to commune with fertility goddesses, but that was reimagined and demonized as trying to reach out to the devil, not fertility goddesses. I got it. Okay. And I'm glad we went back to, yes, it does. And I'm glad I asked you again because I I was sitting here thinking, now, did he answer that? Because if he answered it, I, it totally went right over my head, but I got it this time. No, we never never came up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tom, thank you. And listen, I know you're running now, uh, but please uh, give us the title of your book again and your website. And of course, uh, you know, where's the best place to get your book? 
Absolutely. Uh, the book is called uh, The Witch's Ointment, The Secret History of Psychedelic Magic. And I have other writings, uh, videos, uh, things like that, uh, a web journal on my website, which is arspsychedelia.com. That's A-R-S-P-S-Y-C-H-E-D-E-L-I-A.com. And uh, the best place to buy it, um, whatever, it's on Amazon, Powell Books, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, Barnes & Noble has it, uh, some smaller uh, pagan and Wiccan bookstores have it. So if you have a, a you know a pagan Wiccan bookstore in your in your town or city, um, they'll they'll probably have it. Okay. Well, good, good. Thank you, Tom. I've enjoyed talking to you tonight, and I'm going to give good David night. Hillman a little jingle. You can count on that. And please, when your next book is out, most definitely get back in touch, and we'll have you back on the show. Absolutely. If you'd also like to set something up with Hillman, if he wants to discuss the whole broomstick thing with me on air, I'd love to do it. Okay, I'll I'll see if he's up to that. That that would be a lot of fun, and I'll referee. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, okay. I, I, I again, I like David Hillman a lot. I I, I have like tremendous amounts of respect for that guy. I just don't uh, agree with him uh, with the uh, the masturbating ointment broom thing. Well, and and That's you know, and it. I have I have other scholar friends who disagree with some of his other stuff as well. You know, so he is a controversial figure, but he is well loved here Absolutely. on the show. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. So, he's a great, great, uh, he, great writer. He's a, he's a good guy. Well, Tom, thanks again, and good luck with your book and your writing, and uh, no doubt we will be chatting again. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night. Well, that was fun. Um, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did, and uh, I see uh, Starhawk is uh, on the switchboard, so I am going to uh, say hello to her. And howdy, Starhawk. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for calling in tonight. Um, we are uh, excited to be talking to you about uh, about your new book, um, uh, City of Refuge, and it's uh, the sequel to The Fifth Sacred Thing, is what I understand. That's right, yes. Well, you know, I, I want to say again, I said at the beginning, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, say it again here, I hate to give out these spoilers, uh, because <laughs> if you haven't, uh, haven't read a you know, Fifth Sacred Thing yet, uh, we might... Uh, give some stuff away uh, with the sequel, uh, I would imagine, unless you've figured out a way to talk about the sequel without saying how Fifth Sacred Thing ends. <laughs> well, I'll be vague. I'll, I'll <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's let's do this. You know, for uh, Fifth Sacred Thing came out a pretty long time ago. Um, when When did that get published? It was published in 93. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's um, been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while, and you know, maybe some of my listeners don't even know uh, much about uh, Fifth Sacred Thing. Why don't you sort of give a synopsis of what that was about, and you know, that would probably be a good segue into the new book. The Fifth Sacred Thing was a book I wrote partly because I'd been wrestling with questions in nonfiction, like the changeover from the matrifocal, goddess-centered, peaceable cultures uh, back in the Neolithic and early, early Bronze Age eras to these more warlike, uh, male-dominated patriarchy, which 
happened in Europe and happened in the Middle East and similar patterns happened many places around the world. And for me, it brought up the question, how does a peaceful society resist invasion, resist violence without becoming what you're fighting against? Mm-hmm. And so I decided to set it not in the past but in the future um, because I didn't really want to write a historical novel. Um, so it would be too depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you sort and of set up that I wanted finish. more leeway to figure, you know, let it come out the way I wanted it to. So the fifth sacred thing really centers around that, and there are three main characters in the book. Maya, who's the old woman, who uh, kind of, her personal story spans like the early 50s through the 2050s. Um, she's actually the center of, the prequel to The Fifth Sacred Thing, Walking to Mercury, which talks about Maya's early life. Um, But in The Fifth Sacred Thing, um, the real action is carried by her grandson, Bird, who is a musician who's become a a fighter and gone down to the Southlands, Southern California, which has become this very militaristic... Uh, very uh, stratified society. And he is imprisoned there and finally escapes to go back to his home in Northern California, Califia, which has become this beautiful, kind of ecotopian, balanced, peaceful society. Uh, And warn them that the Southlands are going to invade. And so um, his former, his lover and sort of Maya's kind of goddess daughter, Madrone, who's a healer, uh, is struggling to fight off these manufactured epidemics that the Southlanders have let loose. And a lot of the story of the fifth sacred thing really centers around their struggle to resist the invaders, again, while not resorting to simply violence and killing them. Okay, and, all right. Um, in City of Refuge, uh, takes place just after um, the North has succeeded in kicking the Southlanders out, um, but they begin to realize that they're not going to actually be able to be safe and be free as long as the Southlands are in this terrible, oppressive state. Uh, So how do they go down and liberate the Southlands? Um, The city of refuge really centers around a slightly different question. For me, the real question I was wrestling with was how do you build the new world when people are so deeply damaged by the old? Mm-hmm. So it, it has some of the same characters as the fifth sacred thing. Uh, Bird and Madrone are there, Maya, uh, many of the people from the north, but it also has some new characters. Um, River, who is a soldier who defects in the 
a sacred thing now becomes a much more central character. Um, there's a character called Smokey, who is a pen girl, so one of the comfort women from the Southlanders, uh, who is liberated, um, but is still deeply, deeply wounded, angry, damaged by her experiences. Um, Isis, who was the pirate in the fifth sacred thing, is definitely back. <laughs> well, so, and and maybe maybe I'm hearing it hearing it wrong, and 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 feel free to correct me if if my mind is going in you know down mm-hmm. the wrong path. But it's almost as if I'm hearing you know like the big you know maybe the general overarching story is in a way how do you change things in a way from within because you said they have to go down to the south land and liberate it mm-hmm. um you know it almost like i mean you know to put it in modern day context you know some women who stay within the church to change it from within or feminists are trying to change society from within um is I don't know is is would would that be a safe um uh correlation? I would say not exactly because when I think of trying to change something like the church from within it's really about being part of it. Mm-hmm. And in city of refuge um the liberators never really become part of the system they're trying to liberate. Um Bird and Madrone has a dream that tells her, build a city of refuge in the heartland of the enemy. So they go down to the Southlands, um, but they create a little enclave of the values of the North, the values that honor the four sacred things and that honor cooperation and collaboration and compassion. Mm-hmm. Kind of in the center of the ruins of uh, the Southland. Okay. Um, and how uh, how uh, what's the span of time that the two books cover? Um, the first book begins in 2048 and basically covers the following year, and the second book be- picks up right where the first one leaves off and covers the next year. Okay. All right. And mm-hmm. and and actually I think what I heard you say in a sense this is not a this is really a trilogy, right? Because you had walking yeah. the Mercury first. Yes. Um you know, it's a trilogy, but it's a sort of odd trilogy because really walking the Mercury is a different genre even though it has the same characters, but it's not really futuristic fantasy. It's more of a contemporary novel. Uh, okay. But when I originally started writing, I was writing this one giant story that spanned like 1950 and 2050. And when I got to a certain point with it, I mean, this was 20 years ago. This was back in the early days of writing with a computer. And, you know, so you could, you know, when you were writing on a typewriter, you kind of had this pile of papers that, Mm-hmm. Backed up and could, told you like how much of a book you're writing <laughs> with a yeah. computer. You had all these little files that you didn't see till you printed it all out. And one day <laughs> I printed it all out, and I had a stack of paper about two feet high. And I went, "Oh, this is never going to be one book. I've got to split it up." 
Absolutely. Well, and there was so much time between the two books. Um, I've got here in your bibliography, Fifth Sacred Thing. I mean, not that you weren't busy, of course, but why, uh, Fifth Sacred Thing comes out in 1993, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Why such a long time between uh, Fifth Sacred Thing and City of Refuge? You know, there's an aspect of writing a novel that really requires, for me, kind of concentration and just sort of like it's almost like time out from life. Not entirely, but um, you know, there's a way in which you are almost more emotionally involved with your characters than you are with what's going on around you. And those 20 years were really busy. So I wrote in. Num whole number of other books. Uh, right, right. Uh, nonfiction, and um, I was very involved with activism and going to things like the WTO protests and organizing mm-hmm. and learning and teaching permaculture and uh, all those things, and just felt like I didn't have the space and time to delve into a novel again. Yeah, but, maybe it almost almost felt like it had to take a back seat to more important things. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with writing is there's always something more urgent to do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than to make yourself sit down and write. If, well, yeah, and I would imagine, you know, not that um, our... Uh, I mean, not that you aren't educated through a fictional novel and and, and we shouldn't, shouldn't sell short just the pure enjoyment we get from a fictional novel, but I can imagine some of the other activists' work probably felt uh, more urgent and more important than writing a work of fiction, even though you were visioning Another, you know, uh, you know, you were visioning another world, which mm-hmm. um, I, I think, you know, we have to imagine it before we can make it. You know, so in a in a sense, that was a, uh, mm-hmm. I, I would almost see the fiction book as a form of activism as well. Yes, I feel very much that it is, or at least that's how I justify, you know, sitting <laughs> in the house and writing instead of. <laughs> Being out well, on the street, right? <laughs> well, well. Now, tell me. I, I know the last time you were on the show, and we talked about the fifth sacred thing. You were, um, you you were pretty close, I think, to raising enough money to actually uh, make that into a film. Where is that at this point? Well, we raised enough money to begin development, but that's far from the amount of money to make it into a film. Okay. Um, we raised enough money to give me a chance to write screenplay and a pilot and a treatment, but, um, you know, it's nowhere near the amount of money it would take to make that into a, a film, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're working now on pitching it for television, and uh, hopefully we have some things in the works that will, I'm very much hoping, come to fruition over the next year. But part of that uh, process of writing the, you know, it was partly writing a screenplay and writing a pilot that threw me back into the world of the fifth sacred thing and made me start to think, you know, there's more to the story. Maybe I should finally sit down and write the sequel. I turned 60 in the middle of it and was like, you know, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> I better get it I done. Don't, you know, if I did these 
it's long projects that take years. You know, you sort of go, well, how many of them do I have left? Maybe yeah, I better sit down and do this if I'm going to do it. Yes, yes, and and uh, and uh, I recall when. Um, the new book, uh, City of Refuge, came in the mail. It's a pretty thick one. I, isn't it like 700 pages? Yeah, it really like could have been two books itself. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I am I am most definitely looking forward to uh to reading. Now now I'll mm-hmm. read them all together because I actually do have the other two. But it's uh-huh. one of those things, you know, it's it's uh I'm one of these people that, you know, so little time to read stuff for enjoyment, you know, and it mm-hmm. sort of gets it sort of gets back burnered. But um, you know, maybe I have some new incentive now. <laughs> um but uh, you know, the idea of um you know, bringing something to TV, uh, it makes me think about how the Red Tent came to television. I think it was like a three-night special. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even something like that uh, would would be better than it never seeing the light of day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, television is kind of in a golden age right now where all kinds of really exciting things are happening. And unfortunately, movies are not there um you know i think it's part of this whole process we see in so many different aspects of things becoming more and more corporatized and conglomeratized and Mm -hmm. instead of people making movies because i mean of course there's still people making movies because they love movies and want to make movies but the big decision makers are the studios who are now owned by the mega corporations whose main consideration is making mega profits. And so that's why we see things like, you know, the Marvel Comics series over and over and over again. Mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. are fewer um, really good independent films. Yeah. Especially fewer sort of mid-range films, you know. There's little small things that can be shot on a low budget that are getting made, but something like the Fifth Sacred Thing really demands, you know, crowd scenes and um, probably a bigger, bigger CGI. budget to a. Yeah, 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 I would think I would think so. You know, you, it's not like didn't Spike Lee do his first movie and put forty thousand dollars on a credit card or something? I mean, uh, yeah. this doesn't seem like a book that uh, you could. Make you know it, it doesn't seem like you could do that with this because you can't really just shoot it in your apartment with your on your iPhone and your two best friends. <laughs> right. It needs more than that. Right. Right. So exactly. I keep, I keep thinking I should write something that you could. <laughs> that would be fun to do. But well, and that uh, might made uh, earn enough money to pay for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, a, a day in the life of, of uh, one of the most famous witches on earth, <laughs> or a year, you know, a year and a day with Starhawk or something like that, uh, that would be interesting. That would be, but imagine the time that would take, um, and, and uh, oh, God, I, I, I can just imagine the feedback, too. <laughs> I'm not sure it would be that interesting, <laughs> Starhawk checks her email. <laughs> Starhawk works in the garden. Starhawk prunes the pear tree. <laughs> yeah, not enough drama. Not enough drama to keep uh, keep people coming back to tune in. But look at that movie that was out not that long ago, where the guy's having the relationship with his with his phone. 
um, what was it, She oh, yeah. or something? You know, yeah, I, uh, I didn't ever see that one. But, yeah, yeah I, I mean, that that was uh, quite interesting and very, I, that couldn't have cost that much money. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it was pretty successful and made made some big bucks. But um, so, um, so what else do you want us to know about City of Refuge? Well, you know, one of the wonderful things about it is that a lot of people have told me it gives them hope, and I think it's really vitally important right now when you think about what, you know, what are the visions of the future that popular culture is giving us, that literature is giving us. It's like there's almost, we've almost lost our ability to even imagine anything hopeful in the future. And I think it's really vitally important that we do that work of envisioning what we actually want. Because mm-hmm. if we can't envision it, then how do we create it? That's when right. the key, you know, magical spiritual teachings in goddess tradition is if you want something to happen, you have to envision it first. You have to have a clear intention you make a picture in your mind of what it is, and then you put energy into creating. So for me, that's part of the, I guess, the activist end of it is, yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot of not-so-nice things in both the sacred thing and city of refuge, but there also is this sense of hope and the sense of, yes, people can create a world. We have the tools to create a world that actually would be more balanced, more just, more fair, more beautiful, more pleasurable for everybody. Well, and, and, you know, um, I I think I I started thinking about this recently because of the Bernie Sanders phenomena, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, that people are suddenly, I think, hopeful again. You know, I think they were hopeful with Obama, and then they were disappointed, and now they're hopeful again, and maybe in a different way because now they realize that they can't leave it to one man in the Oval Office. Now it has Mm -hmm. to be all of us in a revolution. But, you know, what it made me think about is how short our memories are. You know, you said that, you know, we have to be able to vision it, you know, we have to, in order to create it. You know, I think we have forgotten, um, in a way, because uh, you're you're close to my age, and so you can relate to this. Maybe some of my listeners who were younger won't necessarily, but they could, you know, talk to their friends who are in their 50s or 60s. I mean, I remember when there was a time when, uh, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, my dad, my dad worked for Sears in the television department selling TVs. My mother didn't have to work, and we had a little house and a car, and he supported mm-hmm. our our family of four. You know, you can't do that anymore, and you know, things have changed. But just the fact that we can remember it, um, I think some people today who are saying, "Oh, the stuff that Bernie Sanders is talking mm-hmm. about, it's it's out," you know, it's just outlandish it could never happen well you know some of these things he's talking about happened not that long ago like inexpensive college you know Uh, I I always find you know I'll speak at colleges and universities and I'll say hey I went to UCLA one of the greatest universities 
in the country. When I went to UCLA, it was free if you yeah. were a California resident. Yeah. And it's not even that it's not free now. It's like students will look at me going like, how could that be? Like, you know, how could, you know, they can't even conceive of that. I mean, yeah. one student actually said, like, well, how could that happen? Like, didn't the teachers get tired of teaching for free? <laughs> like, no, you don't understand. It was free. Yeah. The teachers got paid, you know. In huh. fact, they got paid enough that they actually weren't on food stamps and, and you know, yeah. things like health insurance and benefits, which now most of the universities are using adjuncts who don't. Yeah. Students, you know, and yes, you're right. It's like we've lost even the ability to conceive of these things that we used to take for granted as these are important social goods. That You know, it's the benefit of all of us to have an educated population. Yeah. It's the benefit I mean, of all of us to have a healthy population. Yeah, and I mean, and we're not even just talking about the the education aspect, important as it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember my first job out of school. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't in management, and I had vacation and sick leave and um, mm-hmm. benefits and profit sharing and all of this stuff. And you know, I think we have our we have set the bar so low. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. How did that happen that we have gotten used to accepting so little and imagining these things we used to have as unattainable, you know? Um, it, it, I, it, I guess just brainwashing over the decades. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the ones that have done a very good job of persuading us that uh, somehow or other we can't afford the things that somehow or other we could afford, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, in spite of yeah. World War II and everything else. Um, but, you know, it's because we've seen this tremendous transfer of wealth into fewer and fewer hands and the siphoning off of, you know, the things that used to support and sustain the middle class. You know, we've seen it most extremely in the black community and communities of color that have historically also had the hardest time even attaining any wealth. But the whole real estate crash in 2008, someone said it's been the biggest transfer of wealth from the black community to the white since slavery. Yeah. So many people lost their homes and their assets in that. Um, so, yeah. Go, Bernie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and I, I, I'm glad to actually hear you say that. You know, I didn't know if you were a Hillary supporter, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like for the first time we, with and with so much support behind him. I mean, I kept saying, you know, it's going to have to get so bad. You know, mm-hmm. enough people are going to have to really be in dire straits that people stand up and say, you know, I'm not going to take it anymore. And I think, you know, he is there at the right time. You know, the timing is just right for him. Um, And I I, I don't know. You know, astrologers have said, you know, they're seeing – they're seeing him as the president. You know, it uh, Uh it could really be. 
Um, so I'm excited, <laughs> more yeah, excited I... than when Obama was uh, was you know our you know supposed um, you know guy who was going to get us there. You know, uh, uh, but uh, you know that didn't turn out so well. And and uh, it's funny that he is uh, he is supporting Hillary. Uh, I think they came out today, and his press secretary said he'd like to see Hillary win. And you know maybe that's because he realizes there were so many things he actually didn't get around to doing. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. I, I mean, look. I know he did. I know he did a lot. I know the Congress he's had has been horrible, but sometimes I think, you know, couldn't he have used his bully pulpit to rally the masses the way Bernie is doing right now, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe he couldn't do it because he's a black president. I don't know, but, um, and maybe that's just not in his nature, but um, I don't know. I think I would have resorted to calling on the people uh, if I had been him, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I do know he's faced a level of just sheer hostility and malevolence that really no other president has had to deal with. True. Uh, but uh, he also never, I mean, he always was basically a centrist. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very much beholden to those same financial interests. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and I mean, and I'll admit, you know, as much as I have downed the Republicans um, <laughs> and supported the Democrats, I mean, I've basically supported them because I felt like they were the only ones we could trust on social issues. But the corporate mm-hmm. Democrats, you know, are really just as guilty, I think, as the Republicans when it comes to. Um, you know, letting you know, letting the oligarchy or plutocracy, whatever you want to call it, letting corporations take over and mm-hmm. uh, expo- exploit workers—they're in it just as thick as the Republicans. And uh, uh, I don't know. I think people finally get that. You know, I hope they do anyway. I hope so too. Really. <laughs> well, um, coming back to City of Refuge, I was. Uh, mm-hmm. a- am I cor- correct in reading your materials that? You self-published. Um, yes. Why, why? I mean, I'm sure anybody would have published it for you. I mean, why did you decide to self-publish and not go to a publisher? Well, uh, Bantam, who published The Fifth Sacred Thing, did not want to publish it. They uh, held on to it for four months and then kind of came back with a sort of snotty, no, we're not interested, so... Uh, which is, I think, a function of what's happened to publishing in the last 20 years, that Bantam is no longer the same corporate entity it was 20 years ago. There's nobody left there who had any connection to the book. Um, None of the top editors I'd worked with when I was there before are there anymore. They've all gone freelance, and it's been corporatized and bought and sold so many times now that you know it really isn't the same company it was Uh, so I could have found another publisher for it but there's a lot of you know more opportunity now to publish yourself and uh, I had been seriously thinking about that anyway um, just economically 
it potentially can be a lot better for you than going with a publisher. Uh, we'll see about that in the long run. But yeah, uh, I didn't feel like I wanted to go the rounds of sending it around to publisher after publisher and having them all hold on to it for four or five months and not. Yeah, you could have lost an. Me. Yeah, you could have lost another year or two doing that. <laughs> Right, and like I said, I'm in my 60s now. I don't have endless years left. So yeah. I did a, a Kickstarter campaign uh, in the summer, and it ended up being the second highest funded fiction project ever on Kickstarter. And that gave me the money to get edited, copy edited, and designed, and print copies for the Kickstarter supporters and... Um, basically put it out. So, um. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Congratulations. Um, well, um, anything else uh, you'd like to tell listeners while uh, while you have their ear? Well, I would say for me partly that vision of the future is also something I've been working on in practical ways uh, through teaching permaculture design and training people. Um, Permaculture is ecological design, um, not just for gardens and farms and ranches, but for really understanding how systems work and how if if we understand the way natural systems work and we apply those principles you know, we actually can meet our needs as human beings while regenerating the environment around us instead of destroying it. And for me, it's kind of the practical application of goddess spirituality, of earth-based spirituality that says the earth is sacred and we should take care of it. And then the permaculture is the how-to. So right. uh, that's another thing that's kept me busy over these 20 years. Uh, I teach earth activist trainings, which bring together the permaculture with spirituality and also with um, a focus on organizing and activism and social permaculture. And uh, I find for me that's just a really also wonderful way of renewing my own spirit to actually know, like, yeah, we, we can protest climate change and we can try to stop the uh, pipelines and the oil trains, and we need to do those things. Um, but our protest is all that much more effective when we actually know what the alternatives are and how we can regenerate landscapes on large scale. So I think a lot of that found its way into the book. Um, and some of the characters in particular kind of uh, there's one character, Crest, who's even while they're going down through the Central Valley trying to fight their way down to the Southlands, uh, he's always looking around saying, like, well, if we have to dig a trench, let's dig it on contour, and then it'll capture the rainwater, and then it'll help regenerate the aquifer. So you're teaching the permaculture through the book. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, well, Starhawk, and I guess I, wanna... I should also maybe tell people that I will be touring around with the book uh, over the next few months, 
starting later this month in New York and Syracuse and Philadelphia and then later in Portland. And How Austin. can they find your schedule? So they can find it all on my website, starhawk.org, and uh, the tour schedule will be up there. Our Earth Activist trainings are also up there, and they can also find out about those at earthactivisttraining.org. And the book is available now on Amazon as an e-book, uh, and officially it's going to be published March 1st, but it is actually available. Bookstores can order it now through Ingram Books, uh, which is the big, big distributor. Uh, so if people are interested, you can go to your independent bookstore and ask them to order a copy for you, or you can go to Amazon and by March 1st, there should be print-on-demand books available pretty widely. So is this the 13th or 14th book? 13th. 13th. Lucky number 13. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, well, Starhawk, thank you very much. Um, any uh, any protests or any uh, sort of uh, activism on the horizon, or are you just uh, taking a break from... Uh, uh, birthing this new book? At the moment, I've been pretty focused on birthing the book. Um, but, uh, and on actually the teaching and the training of the permaculture, uh, and on doing some organizing of the permaculture world. We have an organization called Permaculture Climate Change Solutions with a website, uh, Permaculture permacultureclimatechange.org, where we've come out with a statement about permaculture solutions to climate change, and uh, we're trying to promote really looking at climate change again, not just as, you know, carbon trading or carbon in the atmosphere, but saying our approach has to be to really regenerate the ecosystems that have been damaged on a large scale. And the good news is we actually can do that. We know how to do that. We have the tools to do that. And the tools to doing that actually solve a whole lot of our other ecological and economic and social problems. Well, that's very hopeful. Yes. That's very hopeful. How would how would one find out more about that? Do you have anything written or... Um, they can go to permacultureclimatechange.org and um, there's good resources there. Okay. Yeah. All right. And yeah. And thank you very much. For well, I uh, I appreciate appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, you still owe me an answer about whether or not you're going to contribute to the anthology. <laughs> I will get back to you on that. Okay, okay I would love thank to. You. I just don't quite know when I'm going to find the time to do it. In the next well, you know, you can just rework something you've already you've already written, you know. Yeah, um, so maybe there's something we can use for that. Okay, 
All right, sounds good. Well, um, thank you, and and uh, and as you say goodbye, I'm going to be uh, reading listeners your uh, your bibliography and some of your bio. I can't imagine that they don't know, but just in case, I'll give All them right. some of the title, titles of your book and your website and Facebook page and. Uh, and all the rest. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything you do and for being an inspiration. And, um, you know, just uh, stay hopeful. You know, I, 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 I'm feeling like we have reason to be hopeful, you know, more than we have for a while. So I hope you do, too. I do, too. So thank you. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, listeners, that uh, that was uh, Starhawk, and um, just so you uh, know some of uh, her massive volume of work, uh, as we said, this is her 13th book, uh, you know, this uh, fiction uh, sequel to A Fifth Sacred Thing, which is called City of Refuge, but she's also done uh, The Spiral Dance. Uh, dreaming the uh, a, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess, dreaming the dark, magic, sex, and politics, truth or dare, encounters with power, authority, and mystery, uh, pagan book of living and dying, um, a lot of different things. The empowerment manual, a guide for collaborative groups. Um, really, just uh, go to her website, uh, Starhawk dot org, and you will see the massive uh, body of work that she has uh, created in in her lifetime, certainly uh, enough for several lifetimes. And uh, one last thing, uh, I have a question for you. I wonder, how did you first hear about me? I would love to know if uh, you folks out there want to uh, email me. I think it would be a fun thing uh, to know. And uh, the reason I ask is because uh, when I ask students or colleagues uh, where they first uh, heard about my work, some mention my books or maybe they learned about me on YouTube or my uh, or you know here on the radio show, uh, but there's one answer I hear more often, and many uh, many of my friends or colleagues or supporters say uh, they've heard me speak at live events such as, uh, such as echo, uh, expos or uh, the Parliament or the American Academy of Religion or fairs or conferences, or uh, maybe you saw me in uh, Femme, Women Healing the World. And while I do receive invitations to uh, speak from community leaders, uh, most invitations actually originate from friends, fans, students, uh, like you, so uh, I just want to put it out there. If you can suggest or facilitate a connection for me with an upcoming event or group where I might be an appropriate speaker, uh, or perhaps you might be interested in chatting about me giving a talk or workshop to your community, please do get in touch. I'd really appreciate that. Um, some of the topics of my talks include women's issues, social justice, partnership, uh, the sacred feminine is liberation theology, uh, you know, how it sets us free, uh, living a goddess-inspired life, uh, art of pilgrimage and sacred sites of goddess, divine feminine for a sustainable future. So anyway, I'm always looking for new audiences and uh, venues where I can share news of, um, you know, goddess culture, women's issues, the sacred feminine. So I hope you'll consider uh, inviting me to speak to your group or congregation or, um, you know, uh, telling your friends about me if they're the decision makers, uh, because I think we can really create a new normal and uh, and usher in that paradigm shift. But, you know, as Starhawk says, we have to be able to imagine it 
at first. And I think a lot of the things that I also talk about uh, help us imagine uh, what can be, what that new normal looks like, because I think we really have forgotten. Uh, we've forgotten way too much. And um, I think maybe in our exhaustion, um, our imaginations uh, need a jump start. So anyway, um, there's that. And um, I also want to tell you there's something new. Um, you may or may not have heard about it. Uh, for some time on the show, I've described the film Dancing with Gaia uh, by Joe Carson. Well, Joe's written a book called Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path, which has uh, come out in a new expanded second edition. Uh, Feriferia calls itself a love culture for wilderness, and it connects you to the fairy spirits of the land and the stars around you. And uh, it aims to create uh, paradisal sanctuaries uh, all over the earth. Uh, it's rooted in ancient Crete, the Eleusin mysteries, troubadour practices, megalithic traditions. Feriferia celebrates the goddess as the merry maiden called Kore, uh, also known as Persephone. Uh, with and you know, with laughter and play, they say Kore carries the keys to the future. That's provocative, isn't it? Uh, here are a couple quotes from Jason Mankey about Celebrate Wildness. Uh, Jason has been involved with paganism for uh, two decades, and he spent uh, half of that time as uh, a speaker, a writer, a high priest. Uh, here's what he said about Celebrate Wildness. Quote, I began wildness reluctantly, but within 15 minutes I was all in and found myself absolutely entranced by its pages. Some of that is no doubt due to the beautiful artwork of Fred Adams. Uh, just uh, about it, it all just leaps off the page. Why aren't all of the images in this book available as fine quality prints to hang around my ritual space, he asks. Uh, but he goes on to say this book is more than the art. It's wonderfully written and really serves as a comprehensive how-to on feriferia. And you might not know about feriferia, so and uh, so in, in, and you'd be happy to. Uh, there's a lot of great uh, history in here as well, but it's the doing and the philosophies that grabbed me. Uh, and... Uh, he said, I was worried I'd find Feriferia remote and hard to understand or rather dated as a philosophy, and he happily admits to being completely wrong. He said, I found so much of my own belief within the pages of Wildness that I'm actively planning to incorporate some of it into my own coven work. Fred uh, Adams and Svetlana's vision from 50 years ago is just as urgent and as beautiful today as it was back then. The Feriferian vision as it relates to the Wheel of the Year is one I think most pagans would benefit from. So that uh, those are the words of uh, Jason Mankey about Celebrate Wildness. Um, it's a true hardcover art book printed on heavy paper with images of the goddess. There are photos, symbols, diagrams on almost every page, and it would make a fabulous gift. It's available from the Feriferia website at feriferia.org, and I'll spell it. F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And I uh, would concur because I've seen the book. And uh, I don't think you would be disappointed in the least. It's a definite for your library. And um, before I close tonight, I wanted to ask you if you heard about the Singapore government deciding in its 13th parliament that uh, one of the key things that they're going to do in the coming year is to foster a more caring society. 
Well, that's a perfect segue to tell you about some exciting things coming up at Rianne Eisler's Center for Partnership Studies. If you don't know who Rianne Eisler is, you definitely need to. Um, it's because of her work, I'm Doing What I'm Doing. Uh, in her early book, Chalice and the Blade, uh, she got me interested in goddess and herstory. And, you know, it's just really been a lifetime of activism and learning about the divine feminine for the last 30 years. Well, now Rianne has made a pivot uh, and talks more about the importance of having a partnership society rather than a dominator society. And she wrote another book called Our Real Wealth, which ties into the need uh, for a caring economy and caring economics. I remember when things weren't the way they are now. This isn't normal, much as Star Hawk and I were saying. It wasn't that long ago. Things were not like this. Anyway, Rianne's been busy working to help change the world, and there's an upcoming online class I want to tell you about that I'm actually uh, enrolled in. Uh, and they're having an early bird discount that's extended, um, uh, you know, that's been extended, and it starts on March 8th. Um, they say, uh, are you ready to become visible as a caring economy leader? Conversation leaders worldwide speak out for a saner, more practical economic system, one that acknowledges that the work of caring for people and the planet. We invite you to join 250-plus global conversation leaders in 18 countries speaking out for an economy that honors the vital work of care. Yes, this is most definitely goddess ideals here. The Caring Economy Advocates Program, or CAP, now in its sixth year, provides the language, tools, and experience you need to step confidently into leadership as a local ambassador of the Caring Economy Campaign. Unlike other online classes, the CAP certification program is designed to support real human connections, not only with your cohort mates, but also with your local community and with our extended global network of program graduates. Small class sizes, expert facilitation, and our easy-to-use online discussion space create rich opportunities for discussion, networking, and resource sharing with passionate change makers from around the world. Caring economy advocates are coaches, educators, business leaders, policymakers, activists, parents, spiritual leaders, writers, filmmakers. With the tools provided by this dynamic certification program, caring economy advocates invite audiences to take local action to make the work of caring and caregiving more visible and valued. So if you were looking for a way to make a difference, if you want to help change the world uh, in meaningful ways outside of the spiritual arena, maybe you want to actually get involved in your community, this is a way to do it. Um, right now I'm taking their um, uh, partnership program, um, uh, The Power of Partnership, and I am loving it. I expect this to be just as good. Uh, so if you want more information about it, please go to uh, caringeconomy.org, caringeconomy.org backslash advocates. Uh, CaringEconomy.org backslash advocates. And I think there's also a discount if uh, you bring a friend. So you can find out uh, all about this. Um, uh, early bird discount is through February 12th. That's just a couple days away. Uh, so please check it out. Don't uh, don't hesitate. If, if you feel drawn to this, if you're called to it, uh, listen to your intuition because... Uh, I don't think you will be sorry. 
Well, thank you, my dear listeners, for another great night. I hope you enjoyed my two wonderful guests. Uh, I may just get David Hillman and Tom Hatsis together on the air. We'll see about that. And, um, you know, I think the motto of my show goes for the Bernie Sanders campaign. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Those are the words of Gandhi and how true. And how true it is. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are the gas in my tank. And I will see you again next Wednesday. Um, Until then, have a wonderful week. And if you can volunteer for Bernie, find one of those phone calling parties and do it. Or go knock on doors or do whatever you can. Just go to BernieSanders.com, click the volunteer button. It will tell you different ways you can be involved. Because you know what? We have an opportunity here to change the world. Don't let it pass you by. All right. Good night. Have a great week. Until then, bye-bye.